why is this man wearing a plastic bucket on his head? It gets weirder. The inside of the bucket is lined with aluminium foil and has a row of red LED lights that encircle the man's head. He's got this huge smile on his face. The man is retired federal politician Max Burr. He says his light-filled bucket has improved his physical strength, his handwriting, even his sense of smell. Well, not just the bucket. There was also the lampshade he wore on his head before that. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Just a couple of weeks ago, legendary American singer-songwriter Neil Diamond cancelled his Australian tour, saying he'd been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He's 77 years old, but Parkinson's is not just an older person's condition. Michael J. Fox has been living with Parkinson's since 1991, when he was diagnosed at the age of 29. On the phone with me right now is Gold Coast freelance journalist Susie Mahonan, whose article about a new treatment for Parkinson's is in this month's edition of Signs of the Times magazine. Hi Susie, it's great to have you with us. Oh look, honestly, thank you Kent for having us on your show. What did you learn about Parkinson's during your research? I mean, I understand you're you're not a a doctor or a medical person, but from a lay person's point of view, what did you learn about Parkinson's? Well, it's, I mean, it's a terrible disease. I had no idea. It affects about 10 million people around the world. It causes over 100,000 deaths annually. It's, um, its cause remains a mystery still, but it's known to be associated with dopamine depletion and loss of neurons in the basal ganglia region of the brain. Um, and, yeah, the, um, the symptoms of it, it's, a, it's actually a combination of movement disorders, which include tremor, muscle rigidity, impaired balance, slowness of movement... It can also cause neurological problems uh, such as depression, poor sleep, memory loss and confusion. And uh, the unfortunate thing about Parkinson's is obviously there's no cure and medications don't stop the progression of the disease. They can help with symptoms, but um, like with a lot of medications, your body also builds up resistance to it. So you sort of need need more and more, a higher and higher dose to sort of um, help you with it. So, no, it's, it's a really, really debilitating disease, unfortunately, and very common. Wow. So in, in Australia, like just in Australia, there are, what, yeah. 70,000 people, yeah. people affected? Yep. Yeah. Yep. About 70,000 Australians are affected and it causes about 1,700 deaths per year. Wow. Also on the line today is uh, General Practitioner Mark Jeffrey from the Surface Health Medical Centre. Um, now, Mark, you, you heard Suvi suggesting that no one knows the, the cause of Parkinson's disease. Is, is that correct? Surely there must be some theories. Yeah, look, I mean, at the moment, it's probably more a complex interaction between a person's genetic makeup, uh, his life activities, including ex- environmental exposures. Genetic or hereditary Parkinson's is very rare. Um, there's probably some relationship in older patients towards a vascular contribution uh, towards Parkinson's and certainly even possibly towards um, Alzheimer's dementia. Environmental cause would be more, you know, toxins, you know, that we could be exposed to that we haven't elucidated at the moment. Okay. And really what they would be doing is they would be contributing to uh, the dopamine-producing neurons dying. But at the moment, it's generally impossible to to determine the cause of Parkinson's in, in an individual. Okay, f- fair enough. Now, Suvi mentioned that 
this actually kills people, which seems a little bit strange, um, just to sort of from a layperson's point of view. I mean, we're talking about people who are, you know, are, are a bit shaky in their hands, have a bit of a shuffling walk and are a bit unstable in, in their posture. How does that lead to, to someone's death? Like, what, what's the progression of the disease? Well, the progression really, really is determined by how much bradykinesia they get, so their ability to move, and how much dementia they get as well. Some some patients going to get dementia, so there's quite a wide spectrum of physicality involved in this condition. And uh, you, there are some patients that are totally wheelchair bound and can't speak, have difficulty swallowing. Eventually, they may aspirate their fluid and get a pneumonia. Um, or that's usually the the, the one uh, condition that can obviously result in death. Uh, they don't have abilities to cough well, clear their chest, clear secretions. So breathing becomes yeah, difficult, basically. It, it can become difficult. Yeah, they don't. They, they just lose their their muscle tone. They, they you know, apart from the rigidity, it sounds a bit uh, absurd that on the one hand they they're very rigid, yet on the other hand, if they wheelchair bound, it's like anything, you lose your muscle tone. Sure. Wow. No, look, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a very happy prognosis, uh, that's for sure. So, Suvi, I mentioned in the intro about the man with a bucket on his head. Tell, yeah. <laughs> tell, us, about, tell us about Max Burr. Yeah, I love Max Burr. I've spoken to Max Burr so many times on the phone. I always joke to him, give it to a politician to get things done. <laughs> so Max, he's a federal Liberal MP. R- retired. Yeah. yeah, retired M- MP. Um, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2012. And um, as a typical Parkinson's patient, he needed a steady increase in his medications. Um, by this stage, he was getting really affected by the disease. Like, um, he could no longer write. Um, he couldn't play the piano, which he loved doing. He'd lost his sense of smell. And um, he couldn't talk very well anymore. His voice was getting timid. And he was under the care of a doctor called Frank Nicholson. He's a geriatrician in Tasmania. Okay. And um, Frank wanted to up his medications even more. And Max said, um, no, look, you know, he was, he was afraid of, you know, getting further side effects. And he said, no, I really want to try and find, you know, different options for myself. So he went home, got on Google, started to really search. And he came across this um, research paper that was written by a professor, John Mitrofanis, who's a professor of anatomy at the University of Sydney. Okay. And this paper showed that... Um, it basically, this paper that he found showed that the use of 670 nanometer inf- red light was protective of neurons in Parkinson's in animal diseases of, I'm uh, sorry, in animal studies of Parkinson's. Um, so he got in contact with John Mitrofanis, um, sent him an email and said, look, your paper and your research looks really interesting. I wouldn't mind having a go at red light therapy for myself. And... Um, John had to reply to him and say, look, we're really excited about the results that we're getting in the laboratory because, yes, it does look like these wavelengths of light have a protective effect on neurons, but it hasn't gone to human trials yet, so I can't recommend it to humans. And pretty much Max was at the point where he didn't have anything to lose. He said to John, look, I'm going to try it anyway. So John pretty much just said, well, look, good luck. I hope you don't fry your brain. (laughs) And so with the help of two friends... um, 
retired Dr. Catherine Hamilton and her physicist husband, David, in Tasmania, he went ahead and he built his own red light device. Um, and he, he, he used a lampshade, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he got a lampshade. He literally got a lampshade first. Now he uses a bucket, but he first got a lampshade. He covered it in aluminium foil. They got LED lights from China, red lights, lined the inside of the lampshade with lights, and he started using it uh, for 20 minutes a day. Um, twice a day, sorry, for 20 minutes, and he started to get remarkable improvements. What, was, such as? What, what, what specifically? Well, they were subtle, but, but over time um, they had a really significant um, effect. So slowly but surely his sense of smell actually came back. Um, he okay. can now walk upstairs unaided. He can um, play the piano again. His voice, is, his voice has come back really firm. He gives public addresses now. He plays bowls. Wow. Um, yeah, like these, these just, just improvements over time really, really sort of added up. He's still on his medications, but, um, but he hasn't had to up the dose at all since he started red light therapy. So he's, he's um, yeah, had, had really good success with it. Wow, yeah, that, that does sound like an incredible result. So, Mark, um, we've been aware for some time that, um, you know, sunlight will, you know, give the body vitamin D. Um, you know, recently we're hearing that the blue light from our mobile phones is sort of disrupting our circadian rhythms and, you know, stopping us from sleeping um, in the, like the Arctic Circle or places where they don't get a lot of sunlight. They have this, what, seasonal affective disorder and that they use, you know, light therapy to try to, um, to stop that depression that comes from all that darkness. Does this red light therapy um, or was it um, photobiomodulation for Parkinson's does this come into the same sort of category? The way I like to explain it uh, in, in a general sense because photobiomodulation is quite widely used um, I like to explain it along the lines of uh, sunlight and chlorophyll Okay. so Chlorophyll attracts sunlight, the plant grows and it thrives. You it, take away sunlight and it dies. It's called photosynthesis, yeah. Okay. So in our body, we, uh, photobiomodulation works on a principle that light is attracted to a chromophore. So if you had a black tattoo, you would use a specific wavelength of light and it would break up the tattoo because that's the wavelength that is attracted to the ink or the black ink. Okay. In the body, we, we do have a chromophore, and our chromophores uh, is the mitochondria, probably some neurons, the mitochondria within those neurons. Um, the mitochondria um, actually, from a cellular point of view, our own cells actually emit light. So we, oh, the wow. cells, when, they, when they're active, they produce light. For that reason, our cells accept light. And so whenever we're doing photobiomodulation, what we're really doing is applying a wavelength of light that's attracted to a chromophore within tissue that has cells that accept that light and have uh, a photomodulating effect to uh, reduce inflammation. Um, in this case of Parkinson's, uh, the exact uh, mechanism by which um, the neurons uh, start to function again and produce dopamine is, is not, I think, entirely understood, but will become understood in the future with more research. So okay. photobiomodulation is widely used. Um, in Australia, we have a lot of skin cancer. We use photodynamic therapy, uh, which is attracted to the skin after we prep it. Uh, the dermatologists use a lot of phototherapy to treat psoriasis and other skin conditions and acne. 
and okay. eczema. So really, um, the the use of photobiomodulation is, is is actually not that new. The earlier studies were done uh, in the UK, actually, uh, in patients that had traumatic brain injury, and uh, a company there uh, produced a specific helmet to treat these patients, I think going back almost eight years ago, specifically for this. And, and it was found that uh, these patients actually improved with photobiomodulation. So the extension into Parkinson's is an extension into um, the work that's been done on photobiomodulation in traumatic brain injuries and even strokes. What's changed the playing field a bit is they've created a device that's not specifically a helmet, but a very easy-to-use device that utilizes a nasal probe, apart from the cranial probes, but uses a nasal probe to emit an 810-nanometer wavelength. That actually, what happens, it, 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 it is directed to the base of the, or just in front of the brainstem, where there's a high circulation of blood. And this blood is, is accepting this 810-nanometer and is likely having a positive effect. Wait, wait a second, Mark. Are you suggesting that the most effective form of this therapy so far is to stick a very bright red light up your nose? No, it's a combination. Oh, okay. It's a combination. <laughs> they're working yep. in different areas. That's that's because um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to target these uh, neural networks within our brain on different locations without having to put a whole helmet on. And they found that these neural networks by irradiating where there's a high volume of blood turning over. And this goes back to the early days in Russia, actually, yeah. where they were giving intravenous uh, cannulas and irradiating people with depression. Oh, okay. And it kind of went a bit out of vogue because they thought it was dangerous. And now they're actually using transcutaneous laser in, in, in some centers in Sydney for the treatment of uh, depression as well or resistant depression as, a, as, as an option. So at the, the, what they're doing with this uh, specific treatment is they are trying to maximize the effects and they found by, by irradiating the um, areas um, at the back of the nose that uh, are the higher functioning brainstem areas that um, uh, it's, it's, it's had a dramatic effect. Wow, okay, because yeah, I, I was going to ask, you know, with, with this sort of helmet on the, on the outside idea, is it the eyes or the skin that, that are absorbing um, this red light? No, well, the helmet is more cortical. Oh, okay. okay. So you remember you've got a thick skull. Yeah. So the red light is the only thing that can penetrate the skull. Oh, so it's actually going right through to your brain. It's actually going right through to your brain. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. It's wow. Cortical, yeah. The cortex is very thin. Yes. Okay, so it's reaching the cortex. And this is where we think it has some benefit possibly in patients with Alzheimer's and dementia because uh, they get some cerebral atrophy that you often see in their cortex. So um, I, I guess that's where the use of this is, is coming in and having some benefit to maybe stopping the deposition of a protein called tau. Um, yeah, there's many factors involved, but the, the, the reality of this treatment is that it's non-invasive. Yeah. Uh, patients that have tremors may benefit from this light therapy, just like the plant benefits from chlorophyll and sunlight. Okay. Okay. Um, and in, in some instances, some people even argue that the lower frequency set devices can be used as brain food and concentration. So these, these studies have been conducted at Harvard, and I think it's just the beginning. I think we're going to see a lot more uh, sophisticated
sophisticated devices and photobiomodulation going forward. Okay. So, so far as Parkinson's disease is concerned specifically, what, what sort of body of evidence is there in terms of, you know, peer-reviewed medical journals, you know, that sort of highest level well, of, these of research? these studies are underway at the moment Okay. okay at Harvard uh, with, the, with the essentially people that um, when they first brought out this device, I'm saying for this, uh, they did initial trials in, in, in dementia and were able to show that there wasn't any deterioration. There wasn't necessarily a massive improvement, but there wasn't further deterioration, but people were able to function better. I think the things with Parkinson's, with the therapy, is more the, is more the effect of the tremor and the bradykinesia, that that seems to help. Now, once again, it's in the spectrum of mild, moderate, and severe Parkinson's. Obviously, if someone's got severe Parkinson's and, you know, is, 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 is possibly, you know, bedbound in a, in a wheelchair, it's probably unlikely that it's going to do very much because the neurons are completely burnt out. Sure. But in the early stages, it would probably be quite useful. So, so Suvi, how did Max Burr make sure that the, the red light in his lampshade or bucket was exactly at 670 nanometers? Or I think you said in your article, he also added another row of 810 nanometers. Like that's sort of pretty technical. Yeah, it is really technical. Well, that's why he did have the help of a retired doctor, Catherine Hamilton, like I said, and her physicist husband. So, yes, it is, it, it is technical. Um, look, I think you can just order LED lights from China certain wavelengths, can't you? Yeah, you can get them in Australia. So you can actually buy LED lights that are a certain wavelength. Okay, let's just pause for a second for a quick science lesson. Yes, this is getting quite technical and you can probably hear from my voice while I'm talking with Dr. Michael Jeffrey in particular that physics is not my strong point. He's about to go into a bit of detail about the importance of using the right kind of red light, the right wavelength and the right frequency. Those are two different properties of light, apparently, although they're related. Look, I guess the take-home message is that while you can make your own red light therapy equipment at home without too much expense, getting it right can be tricky. Back to Dr. Jeffrey. Yeah, you can't, you can't just shove a light on your head. Yes, it may help, but uh, these, these, these lights operate at a certain frequency set. Yes. So to get the optimum effect, you need to have, you, you, you can't just go buy a laser diode and shine it on your brain thinking it's going to work. It won't work. Yeah. You need to have that frequency set of that diode operating in, in a technical fashion that they've shown might optimize the, the actual treatment itself. Yeah, this, this so in is... In other words, you can't just go shove something up your nose and think it's going to sure. fix your Parkinson's. <laughs> sure. Because it needs to be done with a certain wavelength and a certain frequency. And this is what we're seeing. The earlier devices that they made with us were only having a frequency of 10 hertz. They've now pushed it up to 15 hertz, 15 or 20 hertz, I think it is, yeah. And, and so they're using a higher frequency set. And what's happening, obviously, that freak, as the frequency set goes up, you're getting more radiation over the area. You're going to get more uptake of that light. Okay, all right. And if you're just doing a slower frequency set. So the frequency set, a higher frequency set probably ensures a much greater um, irradiation into the, in, into the vessels in that area. So, Suvi, tell, tell me about uh, Peter Cheatham. Yeah, Peter Cheatham, he was a... Um, so he's another um, patient in Tasmania who... Um, he, had, he had a series of strokes in his basal ganglia. And, um, and, yeah, so basically he had sort of tremors and he was diagnosed with Parkinsonism. 
And then um, he started using a device, um, the Violite, which is a device marketed by this Canadian company. The Violite is quite expensive to buy, but, but Peter Cheatham got a Violite um, from Canada, began to use it, and he had a remarkable um, improvement with the Violite after a couple of weeks of usage, um, his tremors went away, he, um, he was able to write again, his speech really improved and, and yeah, like he, he had a remarkable turnaround. And now there's another patient actually in Tasmania, um, a man called Philip, he's also had remarkable um, success with using a Violite device. So, um, so the red light therapy actually works for people um, across a bit of a range of neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's, Huntington's, MS. Wow. Because, um, yeah, in Tasmania there's this little group of, it's like an unofficial human trial of, of people with neurodegenerative disorders that, that are trialling this red light therapy sort of unofficially, but they're using it, they're all receiving benefits from it, They've all been helped um, to have, make these devices themselves except for the two that are using the Violites. Others are using homemade devices that, um, that Catherine Hamilton and her husband have helped them make. And, yeah, yeah they're, they're all experiencing improvements. It's just wonderful. But it, it is hard to imagine how, you know, just shining a bit of red light on yourself could cause you any harm. I mean, it, I, I can't imagine there are any negative side effects. Yeah, well, well, that's the thing. Like, um, you know, speaking to the scientists at the University of Sydney, um, when I was working on the um, original article, actually, they were saying, look, um, we can't guarantee that this is going to work yet for people, but we can pretty much guarantee that it's not going to do any harm. And, um, and, you know, I was speaking to the executive director of the Bosch Institute, actually, Professor Jonathan Stone, and he was talking about photobiomodulation and the research that's it's just increasing exponentially around the world. And he said people are just being drawn into it because it, seem, it really seems to work and because it's so blessedly free of side effects. So what, what has to happen before doctors can really formally prescribe a photobiomodulation therapy for their patients? And what are the barriers? Well, the barriers really in photobiomodulation uh, really at this stage is education of other practitioners that are working out in general practice, maybe neurologists. Um, the barriers is going to be the price because it is not subsidised on the PBS and sure. therefore the outlay may be, uh, patients may not be willing to outlay something that they want to see more evidence of. Um, I'd say those are the two main barriers at the moment. Um, hopefully in time, use of photobiomodulation uh, will become more available to the public. I mean, I think one of the things at the moment is there's not really much of a rebate for using these therapies, so we tend to be more take a pull and yeah. see you later type of thing. Um, whereas photobiomodulation just sounds like it's a bit out of the universe, you know, or how yeah. can you shine a light on somebody and fix their pain or, you know, um, take, take away the tremor in their Parkinson's. It's, it, it's, it's going to take a, a education of the, the broader public and it's going to take education of doctors who want to embrace this. It's going to take studies by the uh, relevant uh, institutions to show that these devices are worthwhile using. But above all of that, the fundamental issue here is going to be the cost as the main barrier. Yeah, sure. Now, um, Suvi, you mentioned the, the unofficial human trial in Tasmania yeah. there with, with, <laughs> with a lot of people using homemade devices. Um, yep. I, I, I didn't 
I didn't quite get to the bottom of how do these people find, you know, red lights that are at the precise, you know, frequency and at, you know, 670 nanometers or 810 nanometers. Like that. How do they go finding equipment that's that precise? Yep. Well, I'll, I'll tell you exactly sort of how this, this happened, really, in a way, this, this unofficial human trial in Tasmania. So it really did start with Max Burr, who's the man in the article. Sure. When he Googled this paper saying, showing that um, the use of 670 nanometer infrared light is protective of neurons, um, he... Catherine Hamilton, I think, and her physicist husband, David, they were already... Um, I think they, they knew about red light or, or they, were, they were sort of friends. I, I'm not exactly sure how, who found out about it first, but when Max found out this information, they then made the device and, and it sort of spread from that. So, so Max started using his device. Um, they were in touch with the geriatrician, Frank Nicholson, who obviously had um, a lot of patients who were suffering from neurodegenerative conditions. Um, Frank was then able to look at this research that was coming in. He was interested in this research. He began to then cautiously recommend light therapy to some of his patients who he would link up with Catherine and her husband. Um, this couple in Tasmania have spent hours and hours and devoted hun probably hundreds of hours of their time to making these devices for, this pe for these people. Wow. Um, in terms of the exact wavelength, look, I, I, um, I'm not sure how they determined it. I mean, the only thing is, I guess, David is a physicist, so I guess that would help. But that would help. look, what I can tell listeners, and this is a really important point, yeah. any listener that is listening to this and really wants more information about this, the exact instructions of how to make this device that Max uses, the exact uh, instructions are on a blog that um, Dr. Catherine Hamilton writes. Okay. And it's a, do, it's a blog that's on the internet. People can find it. Do, do you have the website Red... address for that? I do, I do. So the blog is called Red Lights on the Brain. <laughs> and okay. the, URL, the URL is all one word. Yep. I'll say it slowly. It's all one word, Red Lights on the Brain. Red Lights, oh, Lights, yep. plural? Red Lights, yep, plural. Red Lights on the Brain, all one word. Yep. Dot blog forward slash. Okay. So that's right. the URL. So red, red, light, red lights on the brain dot blog. Okay. A forward slash at the yep. end. Yep. Red lights on the brain dot blog forward slash. Okay. And, and, if they, and if they click on that, the exact instructions on how to make these devices, um, I think she's got the, the instructions on how to make the lampshade as well. But yep. Because, see, the, the beauty of this, that, yes, cost is a barrier, but the beauty of this is that making the device that Max Burr uses that's described in the article that you'll be publishing, Kent, yep. is... Is um is an affordable option for people, and after we've run we we've run this article now in in um in quite a you know a few publications have have been sort of proactive enough to run this. Yeah, I was I, I was going to ask you about that. What what sort of response have you got from from readers so far? Look, honestly, Ken, it's been phenomenal. This has been the most significant story of my career in terms of the positive impact it's had, and I really want to say just first off how grateful I am to the team, first of all, at The Australian. Like Michelle Gunn at The Weekend Australian, she yep. picked up this story. She was brave enough to go with it. Um, I, we have a lot of help from Christine Midap at The Weekend Australian magazine, their sub-editor, Ross Bilton, the photographer, Chris Creera. We had a whole team together 
you know, um, making sure that this story was just going to have the maximum impact and that it was going to be an effective um, sort of read for people to get this information out there because it's such important information. And the response was phenomenal. We had... You know, we've had queries all around Australia, New Zealand. It's spread through people's personal blogs, America, the UK. Um, it's just, you know, yeah, it's just been absolutely phenomenal. And every publication that runs this, and, and I'm so grateful that you're running this, Kent, because, you know, we really need proactive publishers that are just going to get this information out there because it's genuinely a story that can help improve people's lives. And, yep. you know, we've already had people now um, that have started using red light therapy after this story's broken and um, are already experiencing benefits from it. So it's just... And John, Professor Mitrofanis... Um, the the one he's he's considered an international luminary in this research, and he said he said to me, you know, luminary. I, I I really I saw what you did there. That was very clever, luminary. Yeah, go go on. <laughs> yeah, he's, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, very funny pun. He's he's genuinely considered an international luminary in this, and actually, the University of Sydney is a world leader in this research too. So it's from a journalist point of view, it's been such an honour to sort of work with these people and. And, and, you know, like I really do want to say as well that, that Mark is the reason this story was written because I came into his practice, I was, so, I was lucky enough to come into his practice and, and he said, look, it's a real pity that there is something out there that can genuinely help people and nobody knows about it. And I said, well, that's my job, I'll do a story on it. And it's sort of begun from there. But, but you know, speaking to John Mitrofanis, he said, you know, I've been in the labs for 20 years and, and to now get this information out there and to see these people with Parkinson's that using light therapy, you know, he said it, it's a, such a, it can be small differences in their lives, but these small differences are having a huge impact. Like he said, now there are people that weren't able to wash under their armpits that can now wash under their armpits in the shower. Yeah. There are people that couldn't brush their teeth you know, and they can now brush their teeth again. Um, they can now walk upstairs unaided again. You know, like these simple, you know, they can have a drink of water themselves again. They can sort of lift a cup to, you know, again themselves. So it's these small improvements, you know, people sleeping better, um, you know, able to remember some things that they'd forgotten, um, speak better. You know, these these small changes are having a huge impact on people's lives. And Yeah, they, they all add up to, to make a quality of life, don't they? Yeah, quality of life better. So it's just, it's just fantastic. It's just been a really great experience and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk about it and help spread the word about this. You know, uh, it's th great. Thanks so much, Suvi. It's been really fantastic talking to you and also to you, Dr. Mark Jeffrey. Uh, thank you so much uh, both for your time today. Yeah, all right. Thanks for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you, honestly, for the opportunity, Kent. We're really happy um, to be on your show. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.